From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 239 of the Dis Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Dis historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. So, Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. So, uh, you must have all your jack-o'-lanterns carved, your your house decorated for Halloween, for all, and candy ready for all the little trick-or-treaters. Yeah, yeah, it's uh well, I will say the the decorations are up and they've been up. The uh, the pumpkins have melted though. Uh, unfortunately, Florida and and gourds just do not get along with each other. So, um yeah, my pumpkin melted, but it's okay. I can I can find another one, I'm sure, and if not the the Halloween lords will uh, definitely punish me for that. <laughs> I am um... Uh, yeah, I when I would carve live jack-o'-lanterns, I would do it sometimes like the night before, day before, or a couple days before, or even sometimes Halloween, because we have the same issue here in California. Yeah. It was so it, easy. A few days, they're gone. Yeah, yeah, it was easy, like, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania where it was colder weather. Like, But then again, I was a kid for all that, so it might have seemed like... You know, the pumpkins survived for weeks after they were carved. It, it was probably days then, too. But, you know, you just time works differently when you're a little kid. But, yeah, it's just like here it's it, two days after it's carved. There's no tricks that can keep it alive longer. And if you don't pull it, then your entire porch is just going to be covered mm-hmm. in pumpkin guts and bugs. Uh, and what is your favorite Halloween candy? Oh, that's that's tough. Um, I, like if I'm going over to a friend's house, I will always steal their Reese's just because we mm-hmm. don't really keep them here in our house. And beyond that, you know, I'll never turn down a Kit Kat. I, I'll, I'll say that. Oh, that's, that's like the good. that's the one reliable thing that I will always go to. But uh, and that's in terms of trick or treating. But if I had a Halloween candy choice, I am. One of the weirdos out there. I love candy corn, so I was I was gobbling on some tonight. <laughs> I like candy corn. I didn't buy any this year, so uh, but um, yeah, I like I like Reese's peanut butter cups, or you know how they come in the jack o' lantern shapes. Exactly, they just like taste so much more fresh. And fine, and those uh, Mars bars, or no Milky Way bars. I love Milky Way. Yeah, I I've had a lot of those because those were part of uh, the treats that we got. It uh, not so scary. It felt like this year all we got were Milky Ways and and Snickers from yeah, and a lot Disney. Of Skittles, so. over yeah, the a lot of yeah. Which I I don't care for Skittles. So I gave them to the neighborhood kids. Yeah, I'm so. over Skittles now too. It's I I just I don't like those kind of sweets as much anymore. Yeah, yeah, they're they're too sweet for me. But 
But now it's on to our Halloween episode. No. You may recall that back in episode 212, we spoke with Spencer Wright, author of the book Voices Behind the Magic, to share stories of some of the actors who voiced our favorite Disney characters. Well, Spencer is joining us today to share the stories of actors who voiced some of our favorite Disney villains just in time for Halloween. Spencer, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. We are delighted. So so what um, what inspired you to start um, learning about some of the voices behind the Disney villains? Whenever I find I learn about voices, I always learn a lot more about different characters, shorts, movies, you know, and a lot of times information that I wouldn't come across any other way. Um, and I've always loved the villains. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite Disney villain? Oh, it's the evil queen. Ah, oh, from Snow White. Classic. Yeah, since childhood. What do you like about her? I remember just seeing her, her and the magic mirror um, mm-hmm. as a child. I thought that was the coolest effect. She was the coolest character. Her transformation of the witch absolutely terrified me. Okay. Craig, do you have a favorite Disney villain? Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I don't really <laughs> like villains that much, to be quite honest. Uh, but I do love Oogie Boogie, so I know it's not, like, technically Disney animated, but uh, I'm going to give myself a pass on this one. Okay. You're into passes this today, I noticed. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm answering this, but I'm I'm going to give myself the, the okay to choose something that's Disney adjacent for a villain. And oh, not, yeah. Not just, they- like, hardcore animation villain. Oh, okay. Now, I think that falls into the realm. Of I, I would include it. Yeah. Okay, good, good. So, okay. For me, it's uh, it's Chernabog from Fantasia. I just think he is frightening and uh, and just so evil. So uh, he's my favorite. Maleficent is a close second. So, so um, but, but Spencer, since your favorite is the evil queen... And and the and the old hag. Why don't we start out talking about the wonderful actress who voiced those two characters? All right, so we're going to start off with Lucille Laverne. So she was born Lucille Mitchum. She was born November seventh, eighteen seventy-two, in Memphis, Tennessee. And so, you know, she was born into a wealthier family during a time when you know a woman being an actress was about as low as a woman could get in the eyes of the society she came from. But then when her father passed away and her family was broke, um, she was finally allowed to perform on the stage. So as a teenager, very early, she was quite popular as an actress, initially playing roles like Juliet, Macbeth. Um, She premiered on Broadway at age 16. And pretty much throughout the rest of her life, she was always a popular stage actress. Um, You know, she did travel around on trains and stock companies and in vaudeville, but she also traveled to Europe. So she performed in front of, you know, King George V of England, King Leopold of the Belgiums, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. Um, So throughout her whole life, you know, it had all kinds of ups and downs. You know, one thing to keep in mind with Lucille Laverne is she was noted as a popular actress in the press as early as the 1890s. And, you know, she was even included in an issue of Vogue in 1905. You know, Walt Disney was born in 1901. 
And what we now know of, uh, you know, as the Walt Disney Company was founded in 1923. So well before Walt was even born or thinking about a company, she had a whole career behind her. Yeah, I mean, she even had her own traveling theatrical troupe, which I would, at the time you'd think a woman having her own troupe was pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even until 1920 that some women were granted the right to vote. Mm-hmm. So 20 years before then, she was running her own company. Um, she briefly ran a theater on Broadway in 1928. Um, she said something in 1924 that to me feels very disney Um, She said, many girls who went on the stage when I did have fallen by the wayside. Many times I've been tempted to follow their example, but I'm glad that I stuck it out. Yes, I'm very glad that I could bring myself to stick at this work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something where, you know, again, the Walt, you know, what we now know is the Walt Disney Company is barely a year old and she's looking back at decades in show business. So she was a seasoned actress. Yes. Um, both stage and on film. Um, she was a favorite of early film director D.W. Griffith. So one role that we'll bring up, and he really was the first director to pioneer the idea of the full-length motion picture. Um, so one role that's going to be important for us is she played Madame Frochard in a 1921 feature called Orphans of the Storm. And essentially, she was this really sort of filthy, vicious beggar. Um, the film, I spend way too much time on YouTube. The film is on YouTube. It's in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the roles that she was known for during her life. And then the other one was playing Widow Caggle in a play called Sun Up, um, which she had performed it at least 3,000 times. Yeah, and, so. she, and, and she even appeared in the film version. Yes. Of that one, too, to really positive reviews. Yes. So hopefully that film will become available. The film still survives, um, but it's an archive. So hopefully we'll be able to see it one day. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, by the time she showed up to the hype, because, you know, she was in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was produced at the Hyperion studio. You know, she had already had had, you know, over 40, 50 years of experience on the stage. So what she said is, and I'll mention this movie, is that, you know, she said in 1939, Mr. Disney saw me as La Vengeance and heard my insane laugh. He wanted that laugh. And so I got the part. And so La Vengeance is a role that she played in the 1935 A Tale of Two Cities. And this is a movie that's actually on HBO Max. And this is a really excellent example of, you know, the studio system at its finest with elaborate sets, great costumes. And again, she plays another sort of loud um, beggar who I suspect was not wearing her teeth. And that'll come up again. Mm -hmm. Um, So she came in and she read for the Irish. I call her the old hag. Some people call her the witch in Snow White. And, you know, initially the studio was auditioning a lot of women who did this sort of stereotypical kind of hag cackle type voice and you know she was able to do a much more unique witch by taking out her teeth mm-hmm. which is why i suspect in tell two cities she wasn't wearing her teeth either and so as this was going on the studio wasn't sure whether the same person would voice the evil queen or the old hag whether it would be two different people i wasn't quite able to piece it together um, and then I felt better. So Bill Cottrell, who directed these sequences, couldn't exactly remember either. 
It's just that, you know, Walt was listening to recordings of the lines of the witch and he wasn't happy with anyone until he heard the way she read it. And he said, really, the ultimate line of approval from Walt, which is that's it. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. And so she was perfect for that. And then he had her come in again and read for the queen. And so he offered to show her the storyboards, tell her a little about the role. And essentially, she, she snatched the script out of his hands. And he said, you could have recorded it right there the way she read it. Um, so what he said is, is that, you know, she was a professional actress, um, very professional. She did have a bit of an imperialistic personality. Um, but, you know, she read the lines beautifully as the queen. And then with the witch, there was a maniacal laugh that rang over the sound stage, And she could do both. Um, so Lady Macbeth did help inspire the queen. So I wonder if they knew that, you know, decades prior, before most of the animators were even born, she had already played Lady Macbeth. Um, you know, the studio that she came to was a very young studio in terms of the age of the animators, the age of Waltz. You know, many of the animators were in their late teens, early 20s. So she had run her own company when a lot of them weren't even born yet. Um, so what Bill Cottrell said in terms of her voicing both characters is he said, we weren't thinking of having one actress do both parts with the queen's voice. No one read with any great authority or with anything outstanding. We made a test of her voice and ran it for Walt. He said, that's it. So she got two sign offs from Walt. That's remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> most people don't get yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> And she, so she, she performed well. She needed very, very few takes. And most of the takes they did were just to, you know, get a different interpretation. Um, she did also provide live action reference for both characters. By the time she came along, the characters' designs were mostly complete. Um, but she did help, you know, finalize the design and how they acted, especially the way the witch moves her arms. Um, you'll notice that especially when she's running, you know, away from the dwarves, the witch is really swinging her arms around. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Walt wanted these characters to be sort of theatrical, but not too theatrical. It was a balance that he was having trouble finding. Um, so luckily, Lucille Laverne showed up to the studio. Yeah, I know that I, I had read that Joe Grant, um, when she was changed, when she was recording, he noticed she changed her attitude and posture between recording the voice for the witch and the queen. And so he started sketching her in these different poses as inspiration for the animation. Yes. They said it was like remarkable. Like you said, it was like two different people. Um, and so it, so Joe Grant was one of the designers. Now the evil queen, sometimes you'll see listed that um, actresses like Joan Crawford were an inspiration for the evil queen as well. Um, and what Joe Grant said is now Joe Grant was an artist with a very long history with the studio. Um, I think going up into the 2000s, maybe. And so he had a history of drawing celebrity caricatures. So he didn't directly draw from celebrities, but, you know, it's in his head. And so, again, she provided a live action reference. And then one of the other things that helps, you know, inspire the queen and especially the way she swings her cape where the animators watched the 1931 Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. Hmm. Okay. Um, and actually, he also helped inspire a Chernabog, a favorite villain of yours, Bela Lugosi. Mm -hmm. So some animators thought for the Queen, maybe Laverne was a little too old. 
But supervising director Dave Hand said the main point of argument is really that Laverne knows how to deliver lines. We're willing to sacrifice a little to get that direct delivery, that punch we need. Um, and then the primary animator for the Queen was Art Babbitt. And for the Hag, it was Norm Ferguson. Um, so again, for the Hag, you know, she knew what to do. You know, she had played in Orphans of the Storm, A Tale of Two Cities. On the stage, she played a lot of rough, um, you know, sort of women. And there's two movies you can watch today as well that helped inspire her transformation scene in the dungeon when she's going from the queen to the witch. So these are two versions of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, there's a 1920 version and a 1931 version. And, and both are quite excellent. On the 1920 version, it's in the public domain. So it's very easy to find. And again, we have another throwback to Macbeth. Um, you know, the way the cauldron bubbles and then in terms of dr jekyll and mr hyde the spinning of the room and the final reveal um and another thing i thought was interesting as well is so of course she's known for her red apple you know when snow white was developed um you know there was a concern how audiences would react looking at technicolor animated technicolor on screen for a long period of time or if it could even irritate the eyes so a lot of the backgrounds are muted and you really see this as the witch is traversing through the swamp when she leaves the castle and she's going to take care of Snow White herself. And you see a lot of these blues, grays and browns, except for the red apple, which really pops out, even if it's small on screen. Um, and then, you know, the thing with this character is the evil queen is she was the first character to speak in a full length animated Disney feature. Um, and then she was also the first to die when she falls off of a cliff. So she wasn't the first Disney villain, but she really set the stage for every villain going forward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I just think the way they animated her, I mean, she, the how regal she was, what a beauty she was as the queen. And then the stark contrast when she turns into the old hag. Yes. You know, the witch. It's remarkable. And I, and I just love the whole, you know, it feels so 1930s, you know, the setting of the of the witch's or the queen's castle and the beautiful peacock throne that she sits on. That a lot of people miss that detail. And I think it's one of the most stunning um, background sets is her throne room. Yes. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is a good movie to be obsessed with. Mm -hmm. um, because so much has been written about it and the artists who worked on it were asked so much about it that like you said you can go into the whole history of the backgrounds i mean every little detail oh um, yeah also because it was all brand new mm -hmm. um, so and there was another i came across another compliment that walt paid lucille uh, i guess a writer on the film commented to him about changing some of the witch's lines and walt said all the dialogue sounded bad to me until she read it meaning lucille yes yeah so i mean said so walt wasn't one to usually compliment directly or you know or even indirectly and she got quite a few comp really compliments all around her whole performance yeah and this was her last film role it was and then she went back um to New York, where a lot of her movies were filmed, and she lived in a trailer, and then she opened a nightclub in New York, I mean, excuse me, in California, and then she passed away in 1945. 
Um, now, one thing, and it, I said in real life, she was um, very kind. She was tough, which I imagine she would have had to have been. Um, but she especially loved birds, um, her grandchildren. She had quite a grand estate in California until she was in a bad car accident in 1933. And then she lost a lot of her money. So that she was someone who her whole life was just up and down, up and down. Um, but she was always able to handle it pretty seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I think especially interesting about her when you contrast to movies today is that I can I doubt she was. I can find no indication that she was present at the premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937. Um, you know, at this time, Walt wanted voice actors to essentially be anonymous as to not break the illusion behind animation. Um, and, you know, Adriana Casalotti, the voice of Snow White, told stories of her having to sneak into the premiere. Um, so she wasn't credited. She wasn't invited to the premiere. And essentially after this, her life just went on as it always had, um, which is a huge contrast to today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that was fascinating. Definitely Lucille Laverne, somebody that we should remember in Disney history. Yeah, she's one person that if I could name a Disney legend, it would be her. Because <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, I really think she set the standard for Disney film af- and animation in general after that point. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you. Yeah. So. Okay. So so who's up next? What Disney villain uh, voice do you have for us? So up next, we have Billy Bletcher. And he voiced quite a few characters, including the Big Bad Wolf and Peg Leg Pete, or just Pete. Mm-hmm. Um, typically today, he's known as just Pete. So Billy Bletcher, he was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on September 24th, 1894. And in his youth, he worked a series of odd jobs until he ended up in New York City and he would hang around the Vitagraph Studios in Brooklyn looking for work. So until the 1920s, most of the filmmaking in the US was done in New York and New Jersey. Um, you know, And one of the sort of the glitzy glamorous film capitals was Fort Lee, New Jersey. So he was a Keystone cop. So, you know, the the trope of the Keystone cop still comes up today. There are the cops with the truncheons and the round hats sort of running around, totally ineffectual. Mm-hmm. He was in a lot of Oliver Hardy shorts, our gang shorts. He's one of those individuals that has hundreds and hundreds of credits between all the work he did. Um, you know, he worked for Max Sennett, who did a lot of um, early shorts in Hollywood. And he had this sort of deep growling voice, um, which always surprised people because he was five foot two inches tall. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the people he was friends with was Pinto Kolvig, who is most known for voicing Goofy and a lot of other characters. And he had met, you know, Kolvig when they were both working for Max Senate. Um, Kolvig would write gags for him. So at this time, you know, this is 1932, 1933. So the idea of voicing animated cartoons is still relatively new. So there aren't this huge, you know, there isn't a big field of voice actors. So, you know, Colvig told him, he said, why don't you go over and do this thing for Walt? They want a guy who can huff and puff and blow your house in. <laughs> so, so Bletcher said, so what the hell? I did it. And I recorded this thing for Walt as the big bad wolf. And I think what's so interesting for that is, is you know, as important as the big bad wolf is for Bletcher is like, yeah, OK, I'll try it. I'll try this gig. 
Um, and so he voiced the big bad wolf in the 1933 silly symphony, three little pigs, um, which really became one. Of, it's, I mean, that's one of those things where if I'm going to list the, you know, the top 10 most important, either movies or shorts in Disney history, it would probably be, you know, the three little pigs would be on that list. Yes. Um, you know, the song that who's afraid of the big bad wolf written by Frank Churchill. It was really the studio's first hit song, but also the first hit song to come from any cartoon or from animation in general. Um, so Walt was happy with his work. So he did, you know, so Bletcher continued to voice a lot of other characters, especially in the silly symphonies. And he would get paid by the day. So he might record three or four different voices in one day and get one check and leave. Um, you know, again, at the time, there really wasn't a big field of people who could do this. And then in later decades, he had to compete with hundreds of other people. So he was never under a long-term contract. Um, he thinks the only voice actor that was ever under a long-term contract was Clarence Nash, who voiced Donald Duck. Um, so again, he voiced a lot of other characters in different silly symphonies. Um, one I want to point out is Judge Owl in the 1935 Who Killed Cock Robin? which you have talked about on the show before. Um, it's a very important short in terms of looking at how characters move and complicated movements. Um, it is on YouTube. I, I can't imagine it will ever be on Disney Plus due to quite a few outdated depictions, as well as an adult yes. scene. Mm -hmm. Just sort of odd to say, but that, you know that's what it is. Um, so back to the Three Little Pigs. The Three Little Pigs, especially the song, um, was quite catchy, and it became this massive, massive hit. And then afterwards, you had the Big Bad Wolf and three other um, silly symphonies, which I still like them. They weren't as popular. And this is where you get the famous line from Walt, you can't top pigs with pigs. Yes. <laughs> in terms of sequels. Um, you know, you just can't beat it. And then the other character, he I'll call him Pete, but he was originally Peg Leg Pete. So Peg Leg Pete, I believe, may be the first Disney villain. He goes back to the Alice comedies and the Oswald cartoons, which were silent um, he first appeared in 1925, and he was used as sort of either a villain or a nemesis, you know, as this foil to Mickey Mouse. And over time, the peg leg was removed. Um, so he is a cat. Initially, he was bear-like. Um, so one place you can see him on Disney Plus is in the 1940 short, Mr. Mouse Takes a Trip. Um, so in this short, Mickey Mouse is trying to take a train and sneak Pluto on a train that does not allow dogs. And this is one of those situations where, you know, Pete's not necessarily a villain. You know, he's just very gruff and he's sort of, again, this foil to Mickey Mouse. And that's where the clip where they always show Walt Disney voicing Mickey Mouse. It's this it's from this cartoon short. And you see Billy Bletcher standing next to him, this little man doing this big voice of Pete. In there, so folks may have seen Billy Bletcher without realizing who it was if they've seen this clip. Yes. Now here's a good short for Halloween. I didn't even know this short existed. It's a January twenty first, nineteen thirty three short called "The Mad Doctor." Mm -hmm. um, so this is a black and white Mickey Mouse short where Pluto is kidnapped by a mad scientist, and Mickey has to try and rescue him. Um, before a horrible experiment. And so this is a short where Mickey has to battle through a long series of different traps and animated skeletons. Um, and it turned out to be a nightmare. And this is one where Walt did voice Mickey Mouse as well. 
And the thing with the reason why I never came across this short is because it was considered too frightening. And so essentially it wasn't reissued and then it was forgotten to the point where the copyright wasn't renewed. So it's an, it's the only Mickey Mouse short in the public domain. And Bletcher voiced the Mad Doctor. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it was banned in the UK because it depicted living skeletons. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Disney got in trouble a good bit with censors in the United Kingdom. They did with Snow White as well, um, as it being considered too scary. Um, and then another favorite short of mine, I'll mention that Bletcher voiced another sort of villainous character in is the 1935 Pluto's Judgment Day. And this is one in which Pluto is caught chasing a kitten and he's warned by Mickey that he'll have to answer for his actions on Judgment Day. And he falls asleep um, and has to endure an underworld where he's judged by cats. Um, so this is a great gem. And Bletcher voices the judge. And and Craig, in one of your favorite shorts, Lonesome Ghosts, he is the shortest ghost. You voiced that um, oh. short little ghost. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. In the 1937 short. Um, and you can actually, oh, well, this is, I have to mention this. So Lonesome Ghosts, 1937, it's an excellent short in which Mickey, Donald, and Goofy are essentially, you know, competing against these ghosts as exterminators. But a section of it is included in an episode of The Mouse Factory, which is, again, a show you've mentioned before um, that essentially it had celebrity hosts. And each episode had a theme taking clips of different Disney movies, usually cartoons. And so there's an episode called Spooks and Magic themed after Halloween. And it's hosted by Phyllis Diller. So that's what if it features Phyllis Diller, I have to find some way to mention it. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, The Lonesome Ghost is a really excellent short. Yeah, and I, I think I remember seeing that episode <laughs> yes. of Mouse Factory, too. So. If anybody ever has a chance to catch that, it, it was a wacky series. Yeah, it, it, this episode is on YouTube right now. They kind of come and go because I like because you're right. It is a wacky show. It was done. I forget what where Kimball's role was, but it involved him. The anime. Oh, he produced it. Produced it. Yes. And, and he was disliked. Yes. By a lot of the studio folks for what he did with the clips from different films and shorts. Yeah. So it's fun to watch in hindsight. So luckily, he did get credited in one short, as along with Walt, as late as 2013. So this is the 2013 short "Get a Horse," and it was shown before Frozen. So they used archival recordings of voices to show the classic cartoon portion of the short. Yeah, and he was in some non-Disney films, like he he did. Voice work. Um, he and Pinto Kovic, I found out in researching this, they did some voice work for the Munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. So you have voices for the mayor and the Lollipop Guild. Yeah, they didn't like um, the way the little people they had hired were doing the voices, and so they brought them in. And apparently they sped up their voice. Yeah, a lot of people from Disney worked in one way or another on The Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. Or Disney connections, and you know, on the Wizard of Oz. Um, and he also he mostly left Disney because he went to Detroit and worked on the radio show The Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes he would voice the Lone Rangers. He would dub the Lone Ranger's voice in film, and then he 
took the role on in radio. Oh, how interesting. I remember when they re-ran the um, TV series when I was a boy. And it was, I guess, in syndication or something. So yes. I watched it. Yeah, that's one of those films the TV stations bought up to show on TV when they had didn't have enough programming yet. Yes. There was a lot of that when I was little. <laughs> yes. And then he passed away in 1979. Okay. Oh, but there's one villain that's definitely that he voiced that is uh, Halloween oriented, a real popular one. The Headless Horseman? Yes. Yes. How could I have forgotten that? (laughs) My favorites, because he actually, there's a 1963 album. Um, Walt Disney prevents, presents the legend of Sleepy Hollow, mm-hmm. and he narrated the album. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was the laugh of the Headless Horseman. Yes. Yeah, so that, that's a good one. That's one of my favorite Halloween shorts. And I forgot something about Lucille Laverne. It had to do with my, my second favorite villain, Maleficent, in that they reused Lucille's laugh for Maleficent's death scream as a dragon. Yes, they did. They absolutely loved, loved that. It was a blood-curdling laugh that just filled the studio. So, all righty. Okay. Anything else about Billy Bletcher? I think that covers him. So the main thing I would say is go ahead and watch that short, The Mad Doctor. You can watch it guilt-free. Mm-hmm. He also voiced um, one of my favorite characters, Chuck Chuck Jones and Looney Tunes, the Three Bears little series they did. Craig, you probably know this. He was the remember they had the Three Bears. He did Papa Bear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that, remember ba- Junior, the baby bear was like twice the size. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> bears and all that. I loved that when I was little. So. Okay. Now you brought up one that I I really didn't know. I knew his voice, and I'd seen him in all kinds of things, but I never knew the name. That was Candy Candido. Yes, Candy Candido. So he was born in New Orleans on December 25th, 1913. And he got his start in show business, learning to play the um, bass violin from his uncle. So he played in a lot of big bands, um, especially for Jimmy Dorsey. Um, and he knew how to sing a lot of songs in sort of strange, funny voices. You know, the Wizard of Oz, again, he voiced the angry apple tree. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's one of those character actors that a lot of very small roles, like on radio and in film. And he also tried to become, um, you know, Abbott and Costello. Once Lou Costello died, he did try to become Bud Abbott's sidekick. Um, but basically, people wanted Abbott and Costello. Yeah. So it didn't work out. Um, so what he said is God gifted me with the voice range of six and a half octaves. So he could basically voice any kind of animal, funny character, sing any weird song, anything like that. Um, he's the sort of person that normally we may not be able to find any information about. Um, but one of the ways he made a living because he loved doing it is from May to October, he would travel through mostly the Eastern and Central U.S., working as a goodwill ambassador at county and state fairs. Um, so he would do things like drive you know, VIPs around, serve as an announcer, a presenter at shows, which is work he absolutely loved. Um, and then in the meantime, he was always thrilled to get a call from Disney. 
it's nice reading interviews because he just sounds like such a nice, happy man. And you can tell he loved, you know, interacting with children and crowds and, you know, a little bit of a mischief maker, but in a good way. Um, so he first got a, he first came to Disney because he saw just sort of a generic advertisement saying that Walt Disney was looking for someone who could do different voices. Um, so he showed up at the studio and he talked to a casting director named Jack Laven, who asked him to do a raven. And so he had no idea what a raven sound like. So he just let out a balk, um, which they loved and they hired him. So what he said is he got his start voicing Diablo in 1959, Sleeping Beauty. Now, he did also voice the Indian chief in 1953's Peter Pan. Um, so it is possible that he maybe he's misremembering the order of when he was hired. But I will say that Sleeping Beauty was developed over quite a number of years. Yes. Um, Verna Felton, who voiced Flora, the Red Fairy, she went to recording sessions from 1950, 1953 to 1957 to the point where she's like, is this film ever going to be done or not? <laughs> um, so either way, that's the story he told of how he got hired. Um, and they were happy with his Raven. And so he worked at the studio for 33 years. Um, in 1986, he said, so I was the Raven in Sleeping Beauty. I stood on the bad queen's shoulder and threw lightning at everybody. And now I'm an evil bat. <laughs> so he again, he voiced Diablo the Raven. Um, now, Mark Davis animated Maleficent. And one of the challenges he was having is that she's a character who usually stood in a frame by herself and kind of made speeches, which gets boring very, very quickly. So he created the Raven, you know, to sort of give her a break from these long, windy, you know, passages, as well as a point of visual interest. You know, someone Maleficent can actually interact with. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, he also voiced the goons. Um, and so, you know, Maleficent's goons. And so they were heavily influenced by the paintings of Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch, who was alive from 1450 to 1516. So a lot of times when you see History Channel specials or anything depicting demons in hell, a lot of times they are paintings by Bosch. Oh, okay. Um, so there are those evil creatures who are like part animal, part human, eating different. They're very creepy. Um, and so the goons were designed by artist Bill Pete, who had a great time designing them. I always find them very creepy. Yes. Um, and Maleficent's castle, extremely creepy. Um, so, you know, that really started him off at the studio. And he said, it's the greatest studio in the world. They're wonderful people to work for. Nobody ever called Walt Mr. Disney. It was always High Walt and High Joe. Um, and he had a watch that Walt gave him, which he cherished his whole life. And the main thing he enjoyed about the studio, and this is consistent with voice actors and those who are in live action films, is that, you know, they were encouraged to go and be themselves and to make contributions. You know, Walt didn't want people who would just show up and do the job and leave. Um, so, you know, Candido said, I can do cows and pigs. I've never been on a farm. Um, and he absolutely loved looking at the storyboards and how the characters would change over time. You know, it endlessly fascinated him how everything is done by hand. So, again, he loved interacting with peoples and crowds. So he also would go out on promotional tours, either for features from the studio or re-releases. Um, and often he would go with Clarence Nash, you know, again, who always voiced Donald Duck. Um, and they loved entertaining children because between the two of them, they could basically make any animal noise. Oh, that's great. 
Yeah, and he said it was, it was always it was exhausting, but always great fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also voiced a villainous character. This is one of my favorite films, just in general. He voiced Captain Crocodile in 1973's Robin Hood. Yeah, that's one of my son's favorite films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something yeah. about people our age, we just love it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Now, in terms of Candy Candido, to know all of the roles he voiced for Disney, we would have to take a deep dive into the archives or do something like that. Um, you know, but he did say he, you know, he did Barks for 101 Dalmatians. He did Meows and the Aristocats. He did all kinds of roles because he loved taking his children and grandchildren to see the movies. Mm-hmm. And he was always happy when he got a call from the studio. Now, his favorite movie, you know, that he voiced, it, it was Fidget in 19, 1986's The Great Mouse Detective. Um, so this was based off of the book Basil of Baker Street by Eve Titus. And basically, it's a Sherlock Holmes story told from the perspective of mice, or, you know, from the animal perspective. And this actually was an idea that stemmed way back to Bill Pete, coming back to Bill Pete again, who thought that, you know, a Sherlock Holmes movie, you know, an animated Sherlock Holmes movie would work out extremely well. Um, and another person who had the same idea was Basil Rathbone. Um, who was well known for playing Sherlock Holmes both on screen and on radio. And he wrote in the 1950s that it's been done on radio. Sherlock Holmes has been done on screen. The next thing that needs to happen is Disney needs to make an animated feature. Um, So again, this was a favorite role of, you know, Fidget was a favorite role of Candido's. And so it took about two years from the initial voice test and the character design to complete the job. Um, and so what Candido said is, when we finally did it, they made me talk so you couldn't understand me. And so when Roy Disney heard it, he didn't like it. And so they did all the re-recording again for the entire movie, and that took one hour. So what Candido said is, thank God I'm a one-take guy. And the goal with Fidget, so Fidget is the bat who's the you know sort of psychic to Professor Radigan. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to design a character that was frightening but not overly grotesque, scary, yet comic. Um, And one of the reasons this was a favorite of Candido's is because in the creation of this movie, he felt like he saw Disney animation really coming to life again. Um, And the animation of Walt's era coming to life again. And so what he did say, his final thoughts on the movie, he said, you know, the bat didn't die at the end and neither did Radigan. So they might make a sequel. I hope they do anyway. Which they never did. Never did. But you never know. Yeah. <laughs> With Disney Plus, who knows what they're going to create? As long as it's not a live action reboot. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. yeah, but again, he loved watching the storyboards as well as watching the animators at their tables and how they would look in a mirror and, you know, make expressions. And that's how they would capture certain expressions. Um, it was just, he, he always had a great time and was always happy to get a call from the studio. Okay. Yeah, really good. So, and then um, the next one on your list is one we have heard. I mean, we've heard him everywhere. And that's Paul Fries. Yes. And he just worked constantly, television, radio, film, Disney, Disney parks, you name it. Yes. Um, yep. So Solomon Hirsch Fries, he was born on June 22nd, 1920 in Chicago, Illinois. So like you said, he, I mean, he's all over from really the 30s up until the 60s, movies, radio, television, um, almost always a voice actor. Sometimes he appeared live action. 
Um, so it, he began appearing on radio in the 1930s. And, you know, the two main places, well, I mean, keep it everywhere, but two highlights are the show Suspense. So this was an old time radio show, usually featuring some kind of murder. And I love old time radio. <laughs> so and, do I. Uh, yeah. And other people who do as well, a lot of times see Suspense as one of the best shows. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of the most listened to today from that era. So if he wasn't on the show, he always did this sort of very creepy, ominous, um, like introduction to the show. And so I remember years ago, I started listening to the show when I'd be walking to the train and it was still dark out. And I'm like, this is very, very creepy. <laughs> it really set the stage. Um, but then he could switch to another show, Escape, and also do the introduction, which was much more authoritative. Um, so he could really switch, you know, as he saw fit. Probably some of his most famous voices are as um, Fruit Loops, Toucan Sam, um, and Boo Burry in the Monster Cereal commercials. But oh. um, he has hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. credits. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and he was the Pillsbury Doughboy too. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the main, so he never liked going to parties because if people knew who he was, and they always wanted him to do the Pillsbury Doughboy voice. <laughs> Um, and, you know, he mostly loved voice acting because it allowed him he could read his lines and leave. You know, for about lighting, makeup, co-workers, you know, even when you're voice acting, you don't necessarily have to work with the other voice actor. Mm-hmm. You can just record what you have to and leave. Um, and so sometimes he was a little resentful because he usually wasn't credited. Um, so he was somewhat anonymous, but he said sometimes, yes, but it's nothing I can't overcome when I look at the bank balance. Because as you pointed out, he worked all the time. Yes. Um, and it's interesting now that I hear his voice, I hear him narrating all kinds of movies just all over. Um, uh, he was in a lot of the Saturday morning cartoon shows that I watched that were non-Disney um, ones. Like, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle was one of my favorite cartoon shows. He was Boris Badenoff and Inspector Fenwick and Dudley Do-Right. Uh, you know, and... Um, you know, and Craig, you like those Rankin Bass Christmas specials, mm-hmm. the stop motion ones. He's Frost in he in Frosty the Snowman. He was Santa, the police officer, and the little rabbit, Hocus yeah. Pocus. He's okay. And of those. course, yeah, and of course he was. Um, he was, he voiced the second biggest holiday Grinch himself. It says here when I came up with him, Burgermeister Meisterberger and Santa Claus is coming to town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he narrated the original um, Man in Space series, a lot of sci-fi, really a lot of everything, but a lot of sci-fi. So, and he was just working all the time um, because he loved it, and he he was able to make he was able to make a lot of money at that time as a voice actor. Um, and when I talk about Disney, I can give you one of the reasons why. Um, so we most know him as the ghost host in the Haunted Mansion. Um, but he, which opened in 1969 in Disneyland, but he actually began voicing for Disney quite earlier, especially with Ludwig von Drake, um, which he began voicing in 1961 for the television series. And, you know, when he walked on the studio, he immediately loved working with Walt, voicing the character, because so often in all the jobs that we listed, pretty much he was told, here's your script, read it and leave which Walt and the animators absolutely did not want. They wanted you to try different things, to plus it. 
Um, so he felt like Ludwig von Drake was much more personal than most other characters and most other work. So, you know, and he, he liked and respected Walt and he knew he was a tough business guy. But one of the reasons Freeze was able to do so much and make so much money is because in this era, voice actors typically were paid by the day. So he would say, OK, this is going to take all day. And he would do the work in 30 minutes and then leave. Um, <laughs> so he said he felt good one upping Walt Disney. And knowing that he's really one of the few people who can one up, you know, Walt Disney. <laughs> so, I mean, it has a strong working relationship. And Walt gave um, Paul Freeze a gold Mickey Mouse watch which he cherished for the rest of his life. So maybe not the best thing to do to, you know, work 30 minutes and leave, but. Well, you know, if he got the job done, he got the job done. And they were happy with him and they kept hiring him. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause he worked, he worked on other like Disney attractions. Yes. So he worked on pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and he really voiced just a lot of different pirates. Um, X imagine your X Atencio or Xavier Atencio, um, developed a lot of the dialogue and music for both Pirates of the Caribbean and then Haunted Mansion, where Paul Freeze, you know, was the ghost host. And so he called Freeze a tremendous talent and said he plussed the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the things Exitensio liked about working with him is, again, Disney wanted people who brought that extra punch and brought their own personality. And they didn't have to really coax Freeze or tell him to do that. He was able to do that on his own. Um and so in terms of a haunted mansion, I mean, that the um, development of that attraction occurred over many years. And you have episodes on the haunted mansion, um, but there were different, you know, several ghost hosts or guides considered. Um, one of my favorite is there There was a raven that was going to be voiced by Eleanor Audley, who eventually voiced Madame Leota. Um, but she also voiced Lady Tremaine and Cinderella and Maleficent and Sleeping Beauty. Um, and there was also a black cat. But eventually they settled on a ghost host who's totally disembodied. So we never see the ghost host who could serve as a narrator, you know, as the attraction called for it. So once Xavier, you know, Exitensio's script was complete, they brought in Paul Freeze to do an audition. But what Freeze had said is he knew how to do, you know, this kind of voice from the introductions he did for suspense. Um, so his audition was more just trying out different voices. And there is and these recordings have been released over time. Yes. Um, and it's very cool. And with him, it's similar to Lucille Laverne. It wasn't that he needed a lot of takes. They just wanted to get a different you know, interpretation or see how different things sounded. So these auditions took place in 1966. Um, and one of my favorite things is, you know, once again, Bela Lugosi, the classic Dracula, comes up because... Freeze tried different voices and personas that included imitating Bela Lugosi, as well as Peter Lorre. That would have been fun. <laughs> um, so he was, again, he was very proud of his work for Disney. Other attraction that I never went on it, but it's much missed is Adventures Through Inner Space. Yes, um, I remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every time I hear it, people like absolutely said I never was able to go on it, but... Mm-hmm. It seems well missed. Yeah. And Disney uh, Music Emporium for the D23 Expo, they released a um, disc, uh, a, a vinyl of the, of the narration of Adventures Through Inner Space, the soundtrack. So you can hear it. You can hear Paul Freeze on it. And you can buy it now through their website. Oh, good. I've never heard the whole thing. I've heard the beginning. Um, so he was very proud of his work at Disneyland. And 
I guess he was given free passes to go on attractions because his son loved to go to Disneyland, you know, and his father's there with his pass. Um, but Paul Fries, he didn't like waiting in line with what he called ordinary people or the masses. <laughs> and he was a big fan of the phrase, the masses are asses. I hope I can say that. Um, but anyway, that's a big that he would say that all the time. So but he was proud of his work. He did a great job. You know, and think about how many people hear his voice every day. Oh, yeah. Well, even in Pirates of the Caribbean, he um, he's the one that says dead men tell no tales. Yes. And he voiced the auctioneer. And he also um, did the narration for the original Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Yes. As well. So he did quite a bit. What well, One thing that was remarkable. Now, he did appear in a couple of live action films. I think it was like The Monkey's Uncle, I believe. Yes. And, and also for the and what and he was in the Ugly Dash Hunt. But what I saw was that he um, one of the actors passed away after principal photography. So Paul Fries did his whole voice. Yeah, but he had done that work before. Um, like if they needed someone to loop a voice, especially he also had a small live action on the absent minded professor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would do live action on occasion. Um, as well as Tonka. Yes, I remember that. So, That's a good one. Yeah, so here and there he'd pop up. Um, and so he also did voice radio commercials for the Haunted Mansion. And so these pop up on YouTube every so often and they get taken down. Um, but one of them is for someone called Phineas Pock. Mm-hmm. And so Phineas Pock, so he's someone who died in 1720. He said, yeah, I'm tired of resting in peace. I want to get in there and spook everybody. Um, yeah, and I think some of these have been on various um, CDs as well as some of those radio commercials. They have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he voiced a character called Granny Ghoul, um, Willie the Wisp, who was a hide-and-seek champion. They're cool. Um, like I said, they pop up on YouTube every so often. I think they get taken down, but... They're definitely available, which is great. Yeah. yeah. He was also in another cartoon show I watched, the Adam Ant Secret Squirrel Show. He voiced Morocco Mole, Mole Squiggly Diddly, and Yellow Pinky. Yes. Yeah, for Hanna-Barbera. So, anyway, so heard of, heard a lot of Paul Freeze, And he was named a Disney legend in 2006. Yeah, and then at the Haunted Mansion, so he has a tombstone on the crypt. It says, Pharrell forever, Mr. Freeze, your voice will carry on the breeze. And then there's another one, here lies Phineas Pock, laid to rest beneath this rock. (laughs) That's a good one. So what I found, if you can do it, it's, it's hard these days, but right after the parks reopened due to the pandemic, I was, I think I may have been the only person on the Haunted Mansion. And it becomes a whole other attraction. And you really hear a lot more creepiness in his narration. Um, so if you can try and do it at rope drop or closing, it, it becomes a whole other attraction when you're on it with nobody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hear growls and it was quite creepy. So it may not be possible anymore, but if you can try it. Yeah, that would be great. Carol and I actually rode the Haunted Mansion at the Magic Kingdom by ourselves with just... Um, and one other actress and her family from Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you do hear a lot more when you don't have um, a lot of people on it or they're stopping it because, you know, the ghosts have um, 
you know, halted the doom buggies and stuff like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Who do we have next? Next up is Betty Lou Gerson, who voiced Cruella. Uh, 101 Dalmatians. So she was born on April 20th, 1914 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and she was raised in a wealthier family in Birmingham, Alabama. And she entered show business moving to Chicago at age 16. And she achieved a lot of success on radio dramas that were sponsored by soap companies. And these became soap operas. Um, So she was on a radio version of The Guiding Light which was sponsored by Procter and Gamble. And then she moved to Los Angeles in the 1940s and she acted in B movies. And then she occasionally made appearances on TV shows, um, probably most prominently the twilight zone and the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, but she's another one who, you know, really stood out on radio. Um, she was on a show called the whistler, which is another one that holds up. Well, Mm -hmm. escape, And she usually played the other woman, so shady, unsympathetic. Um, But the key thing with her are she played a lot of women who could be sort of wicked and cruel, but in a casual manner. Um, So these wicked, cruel women who's someone that you could know. And again, that's where most of her work took place. Um, And she absolutely loved the world of radio. Um, you know, the key is too, especially especially for a woman, you can come in and do the job and leave. She doesn't have to be in the makeup chair at 5.30 in the morning and then having everything deconstructed at 6 o'clock at night mm-hmm. um, over a two-hour process. So she did first come to Disney's attention providing the narration at the beginning of 1950's Cinderella. Um, and for that, that was an uncredited role, which was typical at the time. Um, and then she would later appear as a crone in Mary Poppins when the Banks children were running through the streets and an old lady sort of accosts them a little bit. Um, but otherwise, her main claim to fame and the main thing she's remembered for is playing Cruella in 1961's 101 Dalmatians. So this is based on a book by Dodie Smith. And um, the main designer of the character, again, was Bill Pete. He's one of those artists that probably doesn't come up quite often enough. Um, He was hired in 1937 as an apprentice animator, and he eventually went to work in the story department. So for 101 Dalmatians, um, Walt wanted to streamline production of animated features if possible. So the film was almost entirely written and designed by Bill Pete. And so he's the one that found Betty Lou Gerson to voice Cruella, um, you know, the one that worked with her and found her. And then the character was animated by Mark Davis. So I like this description Betty Lou Gerson gave to Cruella. She said, she's a dirty, mean dame, but everyone can relate to her. She's real. <laughs> and that was really the goal was to create a character that's more real and that we can relate to. Um, Mark Davis described her as mean, but ridiculous. And he said the idea behind her is that she doesn't think of herself as murdering you know, puppies to make a coat. She just wants a coat. They have the fur done. Mm-hmm. And she's like a shark always moving and causing trouble. Um, And so for the role, Gerson, she was paid $3,500, which I point out because I usually don't know what they were paid. Um, And another person I'll mention real quick who did help create Cruella was actress Mary Wicks. Um, She's another character actress who was in countless productions. Mm -hmm. 
but she had roles in Disney's live action Zorro TV series. And Walt felt she might be a good, you know, because he still kept an eye on 101 Dalmatians and felt she might be a good um, live action model for Cruella. And this was a piece of work that Mary Wicks was especially proud of. But if we get back to Betty Lou Gerson, so she, I mean, she knew how to record voices. And so she said in the first recording session, they told her just to see what she could come up with. And again, this is very common. Disney, they want to see what can you do. And so basically the first voice, they said, that's it. Don't change it. Um, and, you know, she has this sort of affected accent. And her goal was she didn't want Corella to be totally frightening, like Maleficent. Again, she wanted her to be sort of this maybe slightly humorous character who's more comical or we can laugh at a little bit. Um, which is why she really emphasized, Gerson really emphasized the trailing laughter. You know, she wanted this sort of flamboyant character. Many, many years ago, I watched all those Real Housewives shows. And oh, sometimes yeah. Corella reminds me a little bit like she, like a campy version of a lot of the Housewives. <laughs> um, so, again, her and, you know, Bill Pete and Mark Davis worked together to create a character that, you know, we can all try and relate to. Um, and basically someone who talks and never shuts up. So Corella kind of sweeps and causes trouble and tends to leave. Yeah, I know Mark Davis, I came across a quote about Betty Lou, and he said, that voice was the greatest thing I ever had a chance to work with. A voice like Betty Lou's gives you something to do. You get a performance going there, and if you don't take advantage of it, you're off your rocker. Yep, and Mark Davis, he was also especially grateful because after this, he went to work at Imagineering. So he felt like he was able to leave animation on a very strong note. Mm-hmm. And again, this is one of those things that I think about how this contrasts to today. So Betty Lou Gerson, she told the Los Angeles Times in 1985 that basically she was too busy. So she missed the premiere of the movie. And <laughs> so she had seen it recently and she was totally enchanted by the film. So, I mean, again, this is also the era before VHS or anything. So she didn't see it in theaters. She would have missed it. Mm -hmm. But I just find that so funny that she just, she was just busy that week. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, well, maybe she had another film to be in. (laughs) Yeah, she was busy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so she's, and another thing that I thought was interesting is that, so she wore furs throughout her life, even into the 90s when wearing fur, you know, sort of fell out of fashion. Um, she came from an era in show business where if you were in show business, you had to look rich. So for a woman, that meant having a mink coat or a mink yeah. wrap. Uh-huh. Um, so she had them. She's like, well, I have them. I'm going to wear them. I look good in them. So that's it. Um, and this would have been cool. I wish it came to fruition in 1985. She also said that she was at the studio working on a potential anti-smoking campaign featuring Cruella. But it never materialized. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, because Betty, Betty Lou Gerson, she absolutely hated smoking. Hmm. And she was named a Disney legend in 1996. Yep, and along with Bill Pete. Yeah. Which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is another, you know, a lot of the voice actors, they recognized early that this is a character that's going to be alive, you know, in her case, she said 40, 50, 60 years from now. It'll be here forever. Yeah, yeah, and that work is still going to be known and loved, she said. Yeah. Yep. Great. And your final one is one we all know from all kinds of things, especially if you like 
B-horror films, and that is Vincent Price. Yes, and so Vincent Price, he was born on May 27th, 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, so he began working on stage and things when he went to Yale, where he graduated with a degree in English. And one of the chapters of his life that sometimes gets overlooked is that he actually was a contract player. So he was an actor under contract at 20th Century Fox in the early 1940s. Usually it's either some kind of uh, either romantic lead, con man, something of that nature. And I think the best example of his work from this period is 1944's Laura. Excellent film. Yeah, that's yeah. a movie that from that period in general is usually seen as a best mm. And I would agree. But as you mentioned, he's most known for horror films, starting with The House of Wax in 1953, and then low-budget horror films for Roger Corman in the early 60s. And what's most interesting? Yeah. No, I, I just watched him a couple weeks ago in um, House on Haunted Hill, but one of my favorite movies he was in, oh my gosh, and he, it's so campy, Theater of Blood. Where he <laughs> he's he's an actor who gets uh, bad reviews, so he uh, let's just say he comes back from the dead and kills all the critics based on death scenes from the Shakespearean plays that they gave him bad reviews in. If you can get this film, it is worth watching. That sounds fantastic. It is. It is really good. I watch it every year for Halloween. So. <laughs> yeah, and these have like sort of in very interesting casts. Like you have Boris Karloff, um, you have Basil Rathbone, Peter Laurie. Um, so it's it's almost like you're watching it's just the most ridiculous thing, but they're fun. Um and so I mean Vincent Price is one of those people who needs like a big thick thousand page biography written of him because he was in again movies during the classic age of Hollywood these horror movies. He was an expert on fine art and cuisine. So he was highly respected in those films, but he was always open-minded. Um, so I don't know why I didn't know this, but he also provided this spoken narration during Michael Jackson's thriller. Yeah. Which he had great fun with. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was another one that was also all over radio. Again, it was especially easy to just go in, record it and leave and do something else. Um, so if there's one, one of the best sort of known episodes of a um, radio show, and you can just go to YouTube, is type in Vincent Price, Three Skeleton Key. So all I'll say about that show, it involves a lighthouse and flesh-eating rats. <laughs> and it's really one of the creepiest, you know, shows from old time. And they have a lot of very scary shows to listen to from that era. You wouldn't think that. Um, but the way they have the sound effects, and he was on quite a few of those as well. He always had a lot of fun playing villains. Um, so again, and then he passed away in 1993. Mm -hmm. But we know him probably best as Rad Professor Radigan in The Great Mouse Detective. Yes, so I'll back up just briefly to the 1982 short Vincent mm -hmm. that he narrated. So this has actually been up in the news a little bit lately. So Tim Burton, he was an animator. He joined Disney in 1979. Um, and to quote him you know, about this period, he said, Disney and I were a bad mix. Well, he would still agree. I was based, saying, on, based on an interview he did recently. <laughs> history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes. Um, 
And so at this time, they knew he had talent. They weren't sure what to do with him. So he was given $60,000 to develop a stop-motion animated short. So he created a short. Again, this is on YouTube. It's fantastic. About a young boy named Vincent who fantasizes that he's Vincent Price. Mm -hmm. And so Price narrates it. And Tim Burton wrote this. It's fantastic in the style of Dr. Seuss, who's a favorite author of Tim Burton's. Um, And so Tim Burton absolutely idolized Vincent Price from childhood. So he loved his films, and he said Vincent Price was somebody I could identify with. So Vincent Price was sent the storyboards. He agreed to do the narration. So Burton said he was incredible. It was probably one of the most shaping experiences of my life. Um, But unfortunately, this is one of those shorts. It was sort of shown briefly in some theaters and then buried because as is typical, nothing changes with Burton. Disney wasn't really sure what to do with him um, or with this short. Um, so then he was brought back again, as you mentioned, to voice Professor Radigan in The Great Mouse Detective, 1986. And that's one of um, Vincent Price's favorite roles from over 100 film roles. And so during this time, so or I'll back up. So Professor Radigan is a villainous rat. And so he's the villain against the smaller mouse, Basil, who's the Sherlock Holmes type character. Um, And so Price said he wanted to do a voiceover for Disney ever since he saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at Radio City Music Hall in 1937. Um, And he almost got his wish. Well, sort of. So this is hysterical. It's a list that animator Wooly Reitherman wrote as a list of people he thought would be good to play Shere Khan, the tiger in the Jungle Book. And so Vincent Price was included on this list, Um, again, with people like Hans Conried, Boris Karloff. And my favorite is Gail Gordon, who's Lucy's Mr. Mooney, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I think would have been hysterical. (laughs) But so he came to the attention of the studio to voice Radigan because they were voicing um, sort of a thin Ronald Coleman type. This was a. British actor famous during the golden age of Hollywood. So they watched a 1950 movie called Champagne for Caesar, in which um, Price sort of plays like the crazy head of a soap company. And they thought he would be perfect um, and he would really be excellent for this role. So they brought him in and Price, again, he was always very friendly, upbeat, open-minded to all kinds of new opportunities, but he did have to audition. And it was the first time in 45 years that he would have to audition. So initially he was furious. He said, I'd done more than 100 pictures. And if they didn't know what my voice sounded like, then the hell with them. (laughs) Um, But then he realized that he was sort of being a little egotistical. And they knew what his voice sounded like, but they had to make sure he could match voice acting, match the character. He said, the voice is crucial in the animated film. I guess mine evokes a certain mystery or horror or melodrama. And that's what what they wanted for this character. Um, And he wanted to make sure that Radigan is a character who feels justified in his actions. So similar to Corella, he's not in his mind. He's not bad or evil. He's just doing what he wants. Um, And Price said being a villain such as Radigan always kept him in demand. So he did 12 days of work over two and a half years. Um, And again, similar to Candy Candido, who voiced Radigan's psychic fidget, he felt like the great mouse detective was a sign that animation was still on track um, and that the golden age of animation was still going strong. Yeah, and another Disney work that he did was um, for, for folks who have been to Disneyland Paris, 
in the Phantom Manor. He was the original narrator yes. for the Haunted Man, Phantom Manor. And then it, when it opened in, in 1992, he recorded it in 1990. And then they removed the narration and replaced it with one in French by a different narrator. And then, but they kept his laugh in it. Yes. It's so evil. But then the cool thing was when they renovated the Phantom Mansion in 2018, they they put in some of Vincent Price's narration. And that's what I heard when I went to the when I went to Disneyland Paris a few years ago. So so it is great because they use some of Price's original narration and in some that wasn't originally used. Mm. And um, and then they still have some in French that is by another narrator as well. So it's great that he's made a comeback in Phantom Manor. Yes. And there are two places you can actually physically see him on Disney Plus. Um, so one is an episode of The Muppet Show. Uh huh. Of course, it's monster themed. And so you've talked before about The Muppet Show and about how some celebrities seem like they sort of they're comfortable. They know what they're doing and others maybe don't. Vincent Price, you can tell he's having like the greatest time doing this show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's season one, episode 19. Um, you should pair it with the one before that has Phyllis Diller. <laughs> but again he's one of those who you can tell he's just having the greatest time um and then the other it's 20th century fox but it's edward scissorhands yes which was directed and produced by tim burton so price and tim burton had always stayed in touch um but unfortunately um price had a bad case of emphysema so he couldn't be in it as much as would have been preferred um, but he still loved it. Um, Burton said, you know, his whole life that one of the few people who understood him was Vincent Price. That's great. So. Which, again, probably rings true today. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, this was wonderful. What a, what a great way to ring in the, the Halloween or toll in the Halloween um, season for us, the holiday. And... Now, when I now you wrote Voices Behind the Magic, and is that book still available? It is. It's available on Amazon. Okay. Now, the question I have is, I noticed when I was doing research for the villains' voices, none of them are in the book Voices Behind the Magic. So the question that comes to mind is, is this volume two that you're working on? I'm working on it, but I actually have another manuscript that's with the publisher. I can plug it if you like. Absolutely. I've announced it before. So this is through a company called Bear Manor Media. And the title is The Enchanted Disney Stories of Walt, Hollywood, and Live Action Film. Mm -hmm. um, so Voices Behind the Magic, I sort of borrow the same format. And I talk about 15 people who are in live action movies, um, their life, work, and career, and then connections they have to Disney. Um, so the format's a little different. Um, one chapter I'll plug is on Pola Negri, who had a small role in 1964, The Moon Spinners. Yes. And so I contrast, you know, what her experience was like coming to, you know, Los Angeles as this sort of exotic star, 27 trunks, all kinds of jewels, <laughs> versus Walt arriving about a year later, um, you know, who didn't have 27 trunks and a French maid and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Um, so it kind of goes back and forth through the history of the studio versus Hollywood as a whole. Oh, that sounds like it'll be interesting. So yeah. do you do you have a 
Do you know about when it's going to be published? So I know the, the final manuscripts with review with my publisher, um, just because of everything with supply chains and whatever else with dates, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, you'll have to let me know. Yes. When that's out there. So I'm looking, I'll look forward to that. Okay. Now you talked about how Lucille Laverne should be a Disney, um, excuse me, a Disney legend. Is there anyone else on this list we talked about today who's not a Disney legend that you think has been overlooked? Or if you were on the selection committee for Disney legends that you would propose? Well, I, I would say all of them, which I know is sort of a little bit of a cheat if they're not already. But another one I would really highlight is Billy Bletcher, mm-hmm. uh, just because of how important the Big Bad Wolf was to the history of both the studio as well as animation as a whole. Um, and he voiced a lot of other characters in Silly Symphonies where you can almost watch them and trace the animation leading up to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yes. Now, that was the testing ground, the Silly yes. Symphonies. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, we'll move forward. And then he watched a short, nope, we need to work a little more. Um, so he outvoiced about this whole history leading up to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay. Well, thank you, Spencer. This was fascinating. I really enjoyed this. And just want to remind folks, if you want to learn more about um, some of the other folks that we talked about in in our previous episode, uh, get the book Voices Behind the Magic by Spencer Wright. It's available on Amazon. So Spencer, I wish you a happy Halloween and we'll look forward to when your next book comes out. Well, thank you very much. Happy Halloween. Well, Craig, that was a lot of fun hearing about the voices about some of behind some of our favorite villains. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, I think it makes uh, watching the different films a whole lot more interesting. Yeah, I really want to sit down and watch some uh, some some good Disney movies right now. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But before that, it's time for this week in Disney history. So, Craig, it is your turn to start this week. What do you have for us? I have I, I, I want to say I have a good one, a fun one. I wish I could have found something that was Halloween oriented just to kind of stick with the theme. But I found a, a different one that was, you know, it's Florida oriented and something that I can actually speak to. So uh, on November 1st of 1999, many years ago now, uh, that's when the Disney Wilderness Preserve officially opened to the public. And you might be wondering what the Disney Wilderness Preserve is. Uh, uh, If you're wondering, like, where is it at on property? You're not going to see it on property because it's actually not even there at all. This is this is not like South Florida, but it is uh, it is down in the Kissimmee area. So it's it's well south of Kissimmee and well south of Orlando. And uh, but still not like not super far. Uh, you can get there depending on traffic. 45 minutes to an hour from, um, you know, from downtown Orlando-ish area. And it, you know, always varies on traffic here in, uh, in central Florida. But basically, it is a giant wilderness preserve that was donated 
by the Walt Disney Company. So they they made a gift to Central Florida with the Wilderness Preserve. And it started out, I guess, as like a 8,500-acre cattle ranch. And it was going to become residential and commercial development. And that, of course, is not really good for, uh, for an ecosystem. So uh, basically, they all came together. The Walt Disney Company purchased the, the property and then transferred it to, to Florida to help make this giant nature preserve. So uh, it's grown a little bit over the years and there's walking trails. There's there's a lot of really, really fascinating parts to see. And it um, it's, you know, considered to have uh, an Everglades ecosystem to it. So you can expect to see, you know, some of the birds that you would see kind of in the Everglades and some of the other animals. Uh, You know, it's it's not. It's not extravagant, though, but it's uh, one of those one of those places that if you ever are looking for something Disney to do outside of Disney and you want to see you know, kind of Florida in its its natural way, uh, I, I would recommend it. And, you know, again, it's not it's not actually owned by Disney. It's not like there's there's no gift shop. I, I don't remember there might be a gift shop, but they're, they're not dropping you off and you're not buying uh, a shirt with Mickey Mouse on it saying, you know, I was I visited the the Disney Wilderness Preserve. It's it's named after Disney because they did uh, they, they did provide all of the funds to actually, you know, buy and restore this area. So consider checking it out if you ever have some free time in yeah. Florida. Yeah, that's that sounds terrific. But you you can't buy a little stuffed Mickey as hiking shorts in a backpack in a gift shop. Did you say you can't or you can? You can't. You can't. I don't, I, I don't like think. That. I don't. You know, I do know <laughs> they have a visitor center, but I don't. I don't remember gifts. It's been. It's been a long time since I've been there, so <laughs> I will. I will fully admit that. But uh, a beautiful, beautiful area. Well, mine is Halloween oriented, and this is uh, back on October 31st, 2007. Author Ray Bradbury attended the presentation of a Halloween tree in Frontierland at Disneyland. And this celebrates the 35th anniversary of Ray Bradbury's book that I think you've talked about, Craig, the Halloween tree, mm-hmm. which is a 19, which was written in 1972. Uh, about a group of boys trick-or-treating on Halloween. Well, Ray Bradbury goes way back with Walt. They were old friends. Um, You know, Ray visited Walt many times. They would have lunch meals together, you know, visit he'd visit the studio they would talk a lot Um, you know Ray shared with Walt you know his first visits to Disneyland and things like that and um, and and Walt would like allow you know uh, Ray he'd take him through the animation you know vaults and the archives and things like that you know the animation buildings morgue which was the predecessor to the Disney archives and Walt let him choose 20 items from the more. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? That and, is. and in 1983 in an interview, um, Ray Bradbury said, I still cherish those items in my house. And I remember that as a great day in my life. So even after Walt passed, 
Ray Bradbury continued to work with the Disney Company. He helped in the development of Epcot Center. He and he said he wanted to put in some of the ideas that he had talked with Walt about for Epcot Center. And he wrote the original script for Spaceship Earth, if you remember our episodes that we did on development of that. Some of his ideas were incorporated in Disneyland Paris, such as the design plans for Phantom Manor that we talked about just moments ago, and the Orbitron. He also wrote the screenplay for two Disney films, and one was... um, one that I talked about a few weeks ago that I said I'd watched, uh, 1983, Something Wicked This Way Comes. And then the wonderful ice cream suit in 1998 that I have never heard of before. But he said it was the best film he ever made. So I have to look this film up. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a, that's a big compliment to give yourself. Yeah, yeah. And he loved um, – but – when he saw 1929 Silly Symphony Skeleton Dance, that he credited with beginning his lifelong love of Halloween, which inspired him to write the Halloween tree. When, you know, like I said, it's a group of boys who are going trick-or-treating. They're supposed to meet their friend Pipkin at a haunted house at the edge of town. And there they find the Halloween tree. And in the book, it says there must have been a thousand pumpkins on this tree hung high and on every branch with a thousand smiles, a thousand grimaces and twice times a thousand glares and winks and blinks and leerings of fresh cut eyes. And then you'll have to read the book to find out what happens. But, you know, things take a turn. And so um, so he After it was published, Ray Bradbury's always visualized a Halloween tree, and he wanted it to be at Disneyland. And so the Disney company honored him um, to mark the 35th anniversary of the book, and they created this Halloween tree in Frontierland. And it's a big oak tree that's there. And um, so what happened was it started on October 31st, 2007. They started with a dinner at Club 33 in New Orleans Square. And there Ray Bradbury told many stories, uh, including uh, many, many stories about his friendship and interactions with Walt. And then uh, and then what happened was they um, they then went out to Frontierland. And in front of the Golden Horseshoe. And initially, the Halloween tree was hand-decorated by some famous Disney Imagineers. And for the first year, Tony Baxter and Kim Irvine and Brad Kay, um, they magic-markered all the pumpkins and and hung them on the tree and then it and it if you've and you've seen it craig right at how it oh, has yeah. the purple lights on it and and it's such a cool thing and i think people walk by it not realizing the significance that you know that ray bradbury you know wrote this book and he wanted this tree there and this tree was put there um you know as a you know, as sort of a thank you to Ray Bradbury for everything he did for the Disney company to honor him. And so um, so after dinner, the, they went to Frontierland for the dedication ceremony. And he 
Ray Bradbury flipped a switch that lit the Halloween tree. And he said, I belong here in Disneyland ever since I came here 50 years ago. I'm glad I'm going to be a permanent part of the spirit of Halloween at Disneyland. And he visited it many more times before he passed in 2012, when he was 91 years old. And there's a plaque that was installed at the base of the tree to commemorate the dedication. And it reads, on the night of Halloween 2007, the stately oak officially became the Halloween tree, realizing famed author Ray Bradbury's dream of having his symbol for the holiday become a part of Disneyland. So now, it's this was the first Halloween tree at Disneyland, but there are, in the past there have been versions of it on the um, various Disney Cruise Line ships, so as well in the um, atriums, or and um, so that's it. So October thirty first, two thousand and seven, the first time the Halloween tree is lit yeah. at Frontierland at Disneyland. So if you're there for the Halloween season, be sure to stop by and see it. I I love how the lights and the pumpkins make it all look so spooky. Yeah, really do take time to look at it because I you said that people just walk right by it. And I know that's true because when I was just out uh, over Expo weekend, of course, it was already set up for Halloween and such. It was there. I was with people who go to Disneyland all the time. Uh, you know, maybe they they don't really pay attention at Halloween. Maybe they don't go a lot, but they were walking right past it as I'm taking all these beautiful photos of it at night. Because if you don't know it, it just looks like a tree they decorated with pumpkins mm-hmm. on it. But the one night we were there, there was a full moon that was shining right through the middle of the tree. It was just like... It was one of those things. There's no picture that could do it justice, but it was so beautiful. And I do think so many people just walk by it and and don't really pay attention. And it's it's a shame. So uh, take take Michael's advice. Listen to the story. Go out and, and see it. It is it is history that is just living there, much like so many other parts of the rest of the park. But for a Halloween fan, I mean, that's. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Yeah, and you inspired me to actually read the book. I've read many Ray Bradbury novels. I've never read The Halloween Tree. So I just finished rereading uh, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. I talked about it a few weeks ago. So I ordered The Halloween Tree. So it's going to be delivered, I think, tomorrow. So I'm going to going to read that to, to cap off my Halloween season this year. <laughs> Yeah. And it's very easy to read. I mean, I I read it when the last time I read it, it was a couple Halloweens ago. I read it on the couch in a pretty quick sitting mm-hmm. and uh, it just I, I absorbed every second of it. I, you know, I know a lot of people do like something wicked this way comes, but I think Halloween tree is so much better. Uh, it's just it's it's a good book. And yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll look at the tree in a complete different way after it, too. Oh, good. I'm looking forward to that. I know there was an animated, um, I think, cartoon of the Halloween tree, which I've never seen. I do believe you're right. I have not seen it either, though. Yeah. So, but speaking of Halloween, I'm continuing watching films. The only Disney one I really watched was um, Toy Story of Terror. And that's cute. So yeah. it's not really Halloweenish, but I think they released it around Halloween time. They did. So, and mm-hmm. I mean, it's very horror related. It's it's got mm-hmm. the the themes of a good scary movie all throughout it. But it was like 
I, I used to, we used to watch that every Halloween when it first came out. Um, and now I don't, I don't really watch it as much. If I, if I catch it on Freeform, then, you know, I'll, I'll sit there and watch it, but it's not as, it's not as good as it was in its uh, heyday when it was first released. But but then I watched a couple from my younger days. One, Poltergeist, the Steven Spielberg film. Which, <laughs> Toby Hooper. Yeah. <laughs> but Steven Spielberg basically directed all of it. Right, right. So, uh, but what I, um, what I, what I liked about it back then was, because now when you look at the effects and all, I got to realize this was 82. But what you realized is that um how well, all the effects they were done by you know lucasfilm and they were all um you know there was very little cg in it so all of those effects were models and things like that and i, w- I was a teacher in, in in elementary school and the arts teacher had a friend who worked at industrial lights and magic who um had he designed some of the models so i guess in like his hall closet he had one of the models of the head of the big spider creature oh wow is at the door you know towards the end of the film in there and so uh so that was cool but um i i just it had all my childhood fears in it when i went that and that's what freaked me out when i like you know i i believed things were under the bed you know monsters under the bed even though that's where i kept my toys there was no room or in the closet you know there were monsters and i believed you know the toys came alive and maybe were creepy but i had this tree it was in a neighbor's yard this big old oak tree and they had lights in their yard so when they turned on their lights at night it cast these really weird shadows in my bedroom because i had a big bay window in my bedroom and I, I would just see all these shapes and they would freak me out when i was little so all of that's in this film so that's what i found scary but then what this time when i was watching it um i realized you know our house here was built in the 80s boy did they do their research on what houses look like in the 80s when they constructed the sets because i have the same kitchen ceramic tile that's in that film and so did our bathrooms that they've since been remodeled but um and then there's in the stairway that goes up to the second floor there's a um, light fixture that hangs down that the spirits sort of knock around i have the same light fixture oh, that's uh, hilarious in, in our stel- stairway hanging down that goes up to our second floor and and all that and there's, there's a lot of things like that that are similar because our houses are from the same era. They look completely different inside. Oh, and the big round light bulbs they have in the bathroom. One of our bathrooms still has those bulbs in it. That's hilarious. um, But all the bathrooms had them at the time. So, but, uh, so I thought that was just funny. But, and also what was creepy about it was it took place in a neighborhood, just your average neighborhood. Yeah, oh no, yeah. Poltergeist is a, it's a pretty terrifying movie. Like mm-hmm. it's it's got a lot of scary elements. And yeah, of course because it was, you know, early ILM uh working on it, you know, it's it's not perfect and a lot of people probably won't be scared by a lot of aspects of it today, but I mean, it's it, when you really mix everything into it, um you know the just the 
the entire plot of the movie mixed with some really good acting, some creepy effects, like you said, childhood nightmares coming to life. Good music. It's just, it, it it's a, it's the right combination. It's a great mm-hmm. movie to watch. It is. Yeah. It's a fun one. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. And then I had to watch the original Halloween. Of course. Know, so, so, you know, and I've not watched the modern trilogy, but I thought I might give it a shot this coming weekend. And see. Yeah. Although the last two films have not gotten good reviews. Yeah, and and they're not good, but it's just it's so different. It's mm-hmm. it's more the I, I still enjoy them, but they're not I they're not like Halloween movies. You almost can't look at them like the the first one, the 2018 Halloween since. That's like, of course, what what started off this trilogy being a direct sequel to Halloween. It still fits. It's really gory, um, like overly gory. And so it just like didn't quite feel super Halloweenish when it came out. And they've only gotten even more ridiculous as it's gone on. So if you can kind of detach yourself from it and how good the first Halloween movie is, uh, you can you can enjoy it a lot more. But. Yeah, the kills and ends is they're they're not good. So yeah, see, I don't like gory and stuff like that. So I don't know. I'll have to figure out what I'm going to watch this final weekend of Halloween and see. But Craig, Christmas is coming, your favorite holiday, and I know there are some holiday specials Disney has announced. Like Mickey Saves Christmas, a new stop motion holiday special is going to be premiering on abc on november 27th and they're going to rebroadcast it and i'm sure it'll make its way to disney plus but i'm really excited about this bright islands voicing mickey i did not see anything about this when was this announced announced. um brett iwin announced it on instagram and now i think on facebook it's been announced as well from disney has announced it oh yeah i completely missed that i'm that's exciting. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I love that stop motion thing. And so, and I, I, I think it's another thing where they're, they, the gang gets together to celebrate Christmas. And I think Pluto or somebody like, I don't know, does something and they and messes it up. And so they have to go on a quest to rescue Christmas and save yeah. it. I'm, so. I'm okay with that. that. That sounds, that sounds perfect to me. Yeah, and there's another holiday special. This one you'll really like, Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Um, this one I saw today. Yeah, yeah November 25th on Disney+. Plus. And they're introducing, it's going to have all the main characters and, and a new actor named Kevin Bacon. I know. that. So <laughs> the trailer came out as we were, I, I don't think it was our Patreon after show. It, it might have been. It was It was either our Tuesday show or the Patreon after show. And I couldn't listen to it with the sound on. But I wanted to just like still see it and see the visual look, you know, know if it's snowy in it. Like I, I wanted to just, I wanted to know more because I've been waiting to get so many details about it. And when Kevin Bacon popped up in it, I I nearly lost it. And I started texting anyone I thought might be watching it at the same time, too. And I'm like, I don't have the sound on. Who is Kevin Bacon playing? Is he playing himself? He's, he's I playing cannot himself. figure it out. And yeah, mm-hmm. then I watched it right after. And I'm like, oh, man, this is even more ridiculous than I expected. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be crazy. So I'm just hoping it's crazy good. 
Yeah. I, you know, I, I have high hopes for it. I think even though I don't like the, the second guardians movie that much, I, I don't think James Gunn has really steered anything with guardians of the galaxy wrong. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a bummer that now he's officially on the DC team. And after the third guardians movie, that'll be his, his end to anything revolve revolving around Marvel, but uh, definitely made an impact in this short time. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Definitely. But yeah, I like guardians of the galaxy. So I'm looking forward to seeing this. Um, uh, Speaking of Disney plus, and I heard this and you alerted me to it as well for all of us who are complaining that they're not bringing back, you know, some of the classics, the Zorro TV series. You know, we talked about Zorro a while back and we said, you know, it's only the, you know, they, they, they only have the, um, or they, they, the first few episodes that they made into a film and released it were available but um now the now the whole series is on disney plus yeah and it's all been you know upgraded to hd i'm not not sure if it was remastered or anything or if it's just like what they uh they already had done when they made the the treasure from the or the Walt Disney Treasures box set. It, mm-hmm. It's probably just from that. It's the restorations with that. Uh, it looks great though. It looks really, oh, really good. good. And I, I had to stop myself from watching it. I'm like, yeah, I can't, can't get invested in this right now. Not with Christmas movies coming up. Not with trying to watch some Halloween stuff right now. So it will be on my uh, January watch list to, to really yeah. pour through it. Well, I want to encourage everybody to watch this so that Disney will see, hey, there is an audience for these classic series and films so that maybe they will start releasing more. Yeah, because this one, like, you know, it wasn't a stretch that it wasn't going to happen there. that It wasn't a stretch to happen because they have been done for DVDs before in the Mm -hmm. past and they have all the the footage and all the episodes. They just need to put it up there. So this one wasn't a long shot, but there's still so many out there that are also in the position Zora was in that haven't been released to Disney plus yet and and really need it. So yeah, just don't even watch it. Just hit play and let it go in the background. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Let them them think we're watching it. Yeah. I might watch this in November. There's not that many Thanksgiving movies and series. Yeah. I might, um, I might watch it in November. So, but um, I mean, it's Thanksgiving because they give many thanks to Zorro for no, there helping. You go. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and there's some dinner scenes in there. Yeah. <laughs> An- another a special that they've announced it's going to be released on November 20th on Disney Plus. Elton John's live farewell from Dodger Stadium, featuring special guests. Yeah, that's going to be really awesome. So they -hmm. still only just announced that as like a live streaming event. So I really hope that means they're going to um, they're going to also let it, you know, stay on Disney Plus after the Mm -hmm. live stream happens. So people can record, keep (laughs) rewatching it. Oh, I'm sure someone will rip it and it'll still be available potentially illegally um, (laughs) forward in the future. But uh, really cool. I hope they they start doing more of these things. I know some people might look at it as, you know, this. Why does this belong on Disney Plus? Elton John, besides really Lion King and Aida, what does what does he have to do with it? But it's it's how this this platform grows and and becomes Absolutely. bigger. So 
I'm really excited about yeah. this. Yeah, I agree with you. I wish it, I hope maybe this will set, you know how like they always do like those, um, you know, concerts in, in LA where, you know, they have the, the orchestra and they show the, um, as they show the film and stuff. I wish they'd live stream some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, or like in Houston over Thanksgiving weekend, they're doing that with the symphony for Fantasia. How about live streaming that? Oh, that would be an awesome one. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fantastic? So I, I would love to see stuff like that as well as live streaming concerts, because this will be a family friendly concert. The Selton John concert. Oh, so yeah. I mean, get Madonna out there with her spinning breasts yeah. and, and all that. But um, no, otherwise, I, I think it'll be. Yeah, Elton John's, <laughs> you know, it's he he's he's taming his songs. Besides, uh, you know, cover your kids' ears for half a second here. But besides, the bitches back. Uh, mm. It's oh, I forgot about that's, that. That's that's it. And you know what? It's it, there's room can, for this kind of content on Disney Plus too. He can so. sing the Hocus Pocus two version of the song. Oh God, no, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Uh, I'm, uh, I would prefer he just sings it how we all, you know, <laughs> learned it and have, have loved it, but it's really cool too, because I buried in it as well. They've been filming a documentary during his farewell tour, uh, and they're going to combine that with, uh, footage that they've filmed on his tours over the years and make a big documentary that's going to release the theaters first and then we'll come to Disney plus. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big thing. So just keep, yeah. keep doing this stuff, do it like they did with Hamilton, do it for more musicals, do it for more artists like this. I, I want to mm -hmm. see them embrace it a lot. I agree. I think it's great. Carol and I saw him in concert with Billy Joel. It yeah. Was that was a big concert. Excellent. Yeah. It was excellent. So good. So all righty. And it's, oh, you know, when, um, when I was, we were talking about Portos last week coming to downtown Disney, Disneyland, uh, we, um, uh, Mary Jo from our old Disneyland show, she sent me a uh, parcel from Portos. So I, it arrived today and it has some um, frozen cheese balls and frozen potato balls in it so i am looking forward to enjoying those so so thank you mary joe so as soon as i eat some of those i will give my review of portos now that we've had pastries now i can i can uh, you know sample some a couple of their savories and let um, you know how they are since we don't have yeah. portos up here yeah, i can't wait to hear what you have to say yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to them i'm trying to figure out okay what night this week Am I going to enjoy those incorporated into into my meal or have them with a salad or something? I don't know. So anyway, but that was very nice. So, so Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on the different shows on the Diz Unplugged. You can find me on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Teleclaster. And you can find me on uh, my email. You can't find me there. Screw it up every <laughs> single week. But you can email me, Craig at DisneyInfo.com. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling, dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter 
at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or DisneyPlug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.